following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Verse 9 going through verse 20. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In verse 8, the author just finished the third warning passage, and it was a pretty heavy message. He now moves on to exhorting and praising the readers. I have a question. It's not a got-me question, but just... In this room, if you've ever been a supervisor or a teacher who's in charge of students, can you raise your hand? Okay, keep it up. Don't don't put it down yet. Of those with hands raised, who has never, ever had anybody that they've had to do some type of corrective counseling on? No, leave your hands up if you've had... If you've ever done... if you Okay, rephrase it. Because I think there's some confusion here. If you have never had a person that you've had to do corrective counseling of any type, then you can lower your hand. So, okay, that's, that's more what I thought it would be like. So as I looked at this passage, both chapter 5 leading into this and chapter 6, it just struck me as very practical. For those that have never heard me speak before, my military background, I was in military for 24 years, um, and this is kind of a template for how we did counseling when you look at the first part of chapter 6 and then now what we're going to be looking at today. You would bring somebody in and you would talk about their deficient behavior first and then you would build them up and send them back out to work. So first you'd metaphorically pull out the two-by-four, get their attention, communicate consequences, but then you tell them what a good troop they were and how valuable, and you send them back to work. So after I retired and I went to work for a retail chain that I will not name but had red and white concentric circles, um, 
Don't don't name it because that's blasphemy. Don't say that name. Um, went through management training, and I was very interested how they were going to do it. And it was completely the opposite. They told us when you have a person who is not performing well, bring them in and tell them how great they are and how good they're doing. And I'm thinking, this is really not very instructive because anybody who's ever been in trouble, if you get called into the boss's office or the teacher's office or the principal's office, and I've been in all three, you know you're in trouble when you head in there. So don't try to, you know, flatter me. Just get straight to the chase. Tell me what's wrong and move on. Um, So I looked at this passage, and, and to me it was just so applicable to life that what the author here is doing is in verse 8 he ends with if it yields thorns and thistles it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned now I can honestly say in my entire Air Force career and the probably close to 200 folks that I supervised I never once ended a counseling session with a curse or threat of burning Um, There were a couple that may have deserved that type of conversation, but I never did it. But the author here is hitting the the people that he's writing to in a loving way. And it's a strong message that Tim preached last week about falling away and about consequences. But now, how does he start? Or verse 9. It starts with, but beloved. The Greek word here is a very strong feeling of endearment or connection to the readers. It's a person who's dearly loved, is valued, cherished, or sometimes even preferential type treatment. So the author is talking previously about potential or actually exhibited deficient behavior But now he's moving into this exhortation phase. It's the only place in the entire epistle that the author uses the word beloved. Paul uses it often, but here it's just the one time. It could be interpreted as if if I did not love you so much, I would not speak with such severity. Sometimes when we really care about someone, we love them, we need to speak truth even if it hurts into their lives. And that's what the author is doing here. The 4th century scholar John Chrysostom paraphrased it in this way. It is better that I should scare you with words than than you should sorrow in deeds. The author is speaking truth in the warning passage, but he's speaking in in love as he transitions here in verse 9. And when he says this, this isn't a message to just the church as a corporate entity. Because if you look at the words... It's a personal message. He's saying we desire that each one of you, not just you, but each one of you. It's not a rebuking of the church. He's yearning over individual men and women in the congregation that he's writing to. He's yearning over their salvation just as God yearns over us as individuals for our salvation. We all want better things, but when the author talks about better things, what is he referring to? A better outcome than described in verse 6, 
which isn't very good, about falling away and not being renewed to repentance? Is it a faithful life described in verse 7 where we're being blessed with plenty from God? Or is it God's blessings and promises that's going to be talked about in the remainder of this passage? A better course of action or confidence in their salvation? Really, only the last one makes any sense. He's talking about better things that will accompany their salvation in their Christian walk. The author here is anticipating a productive spiritual life from the readers and not a life of spiritual thorns and thistles as mentioned in verse 8. <coughs> Excuse me. And there seems to be two things implied in verses 9 through 12. We learn that even though the people to whom he's writing have failed in some way to grow up in their Christian faith, they were still spiritually immature, they, and they have fallen away from their initial enthusiasm, they have never given up in their service to the church and to fellow Christians. And there's a great practical truth here. Sometimes in our Christian lives, we come to times which are arid or dry. We don't have the enthusiasm or we just don't feel like going to church on a certain Sunday or we don't go feel like going to be involved in church activities. The service may have nothing to speak to us. The teaching that we do in Sunday school may not be fulfilling. Singing in the choir or the worship team or being on a committee doesn't give us any joy. At such a time, we really have two choices. We can give up on our worship and walk away. But if we do that, we're close to being lost. Or we can go on determinedly, serving even though it's dry. And we push through those times of dryness. And when that happens... The strange thing is that the light will come back. The joy will come back. In time, the fulfillment of doing God's work will come back in our lives. In those arid times, the best thing to do is to continue step by step in the habits of the Christian life in the church. And if we do that, if we persevere, we can be sure that the sun will shine once again in our spiritual lives. He also tells the people to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promise. What he's saying to them is, you're not the first to launch out on the glories and perils of the Christian faith. We are not the first ones to serve here in Thailand. We're not the first ones to be called into mission work. We're not going in uncharted or untreaded territory. Many have gone before us. Others braved the dangers and endured the tribulations before us and won through. He's telling them to go on to the realization that others have gone through the struggles you may be going through right now and have persevered and went through to victory. Us Christians are not going on a pathway that has never been walked down before. We are treading where the saints have gone before us. The author is also concerned that the readers lack necessary things for the perseverance in their faith. 
and those are a firm understanding of the reality of God's promises for the future and God's provision for their attainment. And the author now begins to transition to identify how these needs can be met in their lives. The author of Hebrews has no doubt about the faithfulness of God. It's throughout the epistle. But he does not take for granted that the present work of the readers or the hearers of this message will translate to future perseverance. It's rather that they identify with those who have persevered through faith. So he, he will not just let them sit where they're at. They need to be encouraged, and even if those around us, if we have fellow brothers and sisters, never take for granted that they are incapable of falling away or losing the joy that's in their lives. We should always be there as encouragement. In verse 12, he talks about being sluggish. It's the same Greek word that was used in 5.11. And the New Living Translation expresses the intent of the word very well. It means to be spiritually dull and indifferent. Just a whatever attitude. In Thailand, I guess you could say this is sabai sabai. Just whatever. In 5.11, the focus was on their ability to discern spiritual truths and they become lazy in their thinking. But here he's shifting the focus. His focus is on their behavior and not their thought process. He is challenging them not to become lazy in their spiritual walk and in their actions, but to hold true and to be steadfast in their pursuit of what God has called them to do. We all need to finish what we start. Have any of us in this room ever started a project but not finished it? (laughs) There was a gotcha. There was no hand needed on that one. But yes, I mean, I've been there too. We might have had good intentions when we started out, but for whatever reason, we didn't follow through on it. Like learning a new language. Guilty. On more than one occasion. Losing weight. Guilty. That was a laugh in love, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Painting a picture. So when I was in the military, I was a meteorologist, so I got to draw all the weather charts and you know put all the fronts and do all that kind of stuff. And I could do those really good. But outside of that, I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. Building a house. If you drive around Thailand enough, you'll see many places where houses were started and never completed. There's many more examples of not finishing what has been started. Sometimes after we start a project, we realize maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. But often when something is really worth the effort, there are several phases that we go through in the pursuit of this project. First is that initial burst of enthusiasm. I'm sure we all can identify with that. I would imagine most of us, if not all of us, when we first came to Thailand, God called us to come here as missionaries. There was that enthusiasm, even though maybe we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. Or if you start school or you start a new project or you get married, there's enthusiasm, there's excitement. But then as we go through that project, whatever it may be, slowly the energy enthusiasm seeps away and it becomes drudgery. 
and it's a daily grind of doing that project day after day. It could be days, weeks, or even years that we work on that project. Where we get out of bed without enthusiasm, wishing that we could just sleep for another three days. We don't have the desire. We wish we had a new project so we could have that burst of enthusiasm again in our lives and not the drudgery of the one we've already started. But then we realize that there is a goal that we're working towards in the project that we've been called to do. And it's all worthwhile if we continue and put one foot in front of the other until we reach the end of the road. We finish the project that we were called to do. Living as a Christian can often be like this. Have we lost the joy in our calling? Many of us know of Sir Francis Drake. He was famous during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. He sailed around the world, crossed the Atlantic numerous times, was involved in many sea battles. He was a member of British Parliament twice and defeated the Spanish Armada when it attacked England in 1588. All these are well-known facts about Sir Francis Drake. But what may be more significant in revealing what drove him is a prayer that he wrote that may sum up the message in verses 9 through 12. O Lord God, when thou givest to thy servants to endeavor any great matter, grant us also to know that it is not the beginning, but the continuing of the same until it be thoroughly finished which yieldeth the true glory. Through him who for the finishing of thy work laid down his life for us, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what drove Sir Francis Drake and all the things that he did. It was not the beginning. It was continuing and finishing what was placed before him. Then the author switches from the exhortation, moves into God's unchangeable promises. Faithful perseverance. There's probably no greater example in the Bible than Abraham. Abraham who waited 25 years from when he was first told that he would have a son. And the supreme test of his faith, since the fulfillment of God's covenant depended upon Isaac's children. Patience is one of the most difficult Christian virtues to grasp in our hurry-up world. Have you ever said, God, give me patience and give it to me now? Think about it. We live in an instant credit, get everything now economy. We add water and mix foods or drive by fast food places that offer immediate solutions to our cravings like burgers, burritos, fried chicken, fish and chips, salm tom, whatever else. We watch TV shows where problems arise and are solved in 30 minutes or less. Society trains us to want what we want now on the basis of something that requires little or nothing of us. We don't grow trees in our yards anymore. We buy them potted and put them in our yards. Or we move to a house that already has the trees in them. Waiting is not in style, and patience has never been a forte of the flesh. And if God weren't growing sons and daughters, things would not take nearly as long. But since he is more interested in our growth than he is in our getting, waiting becomes a very essential and useful means towards the end. 
He doesn't deal in add water and mix saints. He wants to shape us and mold us and grow us. And then Abraham offered Isaac, the son he had waited 25 years for at Moriah, as we read in Genesis 21, 22, 1 through 18. But Abraham believed the promises of God would not fail. And if we fast forward to Hebrews 11:17 through 19, we see this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Abraham was so confident in God's faithfulness that he believed God would raise Isaac from the dead in order to fulfill his promise. And what was God's response to Abraham's faithfulness? We read that in Genesis 22:15 to 18. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. Multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as a sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed shall all, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. It was Abraham's faithfulness and obedience and following through that resulted in God's blessing him. In God's declaration, I swear by myself. Why did God have to make, did, why did God have to swear an oath? This is written to the first century Mediterranean world. We need to understand the legal terminology when oaths were given or received in human courts at that time period. An oath required an appeal to one in higher status than the oath giver. It would give the witness credibility attached in worth or integrity of their highest of the higher status. So whoever you took an oath upon, that was your level of integrity or confidence. So God has given an oath upon himself. There is no higher level of integrity or faithfulness. Now, witnesses would swear an oath in order to bring about a confirmation or to provide a legal guarantee of the truthfulness of the testimony. When a witness swears in this manner, it leaves no room for a legal dispute. And if truthfulness can be confirmed in a human court, how much stronger is it when God swears an oath by his credibility? But why did God need to give an oath? First, it would demonstrate the unchanging nature of his purpose. In the Greek word for unchanging in verse 17, it was a word that was used in contracts in the world at that time to speak in terms of or conditions where whatever was said could not be annulled, you could not break it. The heirs of God's promise need not worry as a promise cannot be broken that God made. Second is that God intends for his heirs to find stronger, powerful encouragement from his oath-making. In verse 18, to take hold of the hope means that we, are, we have turned from our former lives of sin and despair to Christ for salvation stability, and security. The foundation of our encouragement 
rests in the character of God who cannot lie. In verse verse 14, I will surely bless you and I surely multiply you. The reason I use the New King James when we looked at the Genesis passage, where the Hebrew passage came from, is when you look at the original language, it's actually said twice. There's a Greek word for blessing, ulajan and ulajeso. And these are present and future active verbs. So what God is saying is, I will bless you now, and I will bless you later. Same thing for multiply. There was two words, and it was present and future. Many of the English translations, including the one I normally use, makes it seem like it's only a one time. It's a blessing or a multiplying. But it's actually a present and future when it was written. The only ones that I found that had the double meaning, and I'm not saying that you should always use these, but King James, New King James, and Young's Little Translation had the double meaning or double expression of the blessing and multiplication. It could be literally answered to mean, if I don't surely bless you, implying that if I don't keep my promises, may I never be trusted again. See, as Christians, we don't have faith in faith. It is an optimism. It is trusting and continuing to trust through whatever trials we may be going through in a God who made unbreakable promises and will certainly keep them. Christian hope is looking ahead to the time when, according to those promises, God will make the world over anew, completing the work he began in Jesus. No matter what we're going through, we can have faith in the God who said he will walk with us in those trials and those tribulations. And who are the heirs in verse 17? Possibly, but unlikely, it referred to only Christians of the author's time. It's most likely referred to Christians of all times or Old Testament saints as well as Christians. And all Christians are heirs of the Abrahamic promise, according to Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And what are two unchangeable things that's mentioned here? First is that God's promises are absolutely trustworthy. God will not break his promises. God can be taken on his word. And God's oath confirms the promise. Since God can swear by no higher authority and God is truth, we can rest on the assurance of the promises that he makes towards us. There are two implications that all Christians need to understand regarding God's promises. First is that God has made promises by their nature and require patience to receive. The example of Abraham. 25 years from the time he was told until he received Isaac. And the promises provide a secure ground of hope because of God's fidelity to his promise and oath. But what is our stability or security based upon? Not all anchors are created equal. Anchor is only mentioned twice in the New Testament. Once was in Acts, chapter 27 when Paul was shipwrecked, and the other is here. So 
So the first one was a human anchor that failed. It did not prevent Paul from being shipwrecked. But the author here is talking about Jesus. There's an allusion here to the high priest going into the Holy of Holies once a year, right into God's presence. But in this passage, it means that Jesus has gone into the true sanctuary. He has entered into heaven. He has entered into the innermost courts. He's in the very presence of the Father. He has gone on our behalf. And as believers in Christ, we are attached to him with a spiritual cable or chain. And as long as we don't let go of that spiritual cable or chain, we are anchored to the very presence of God. 1 Timothy 1.19 This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Christ is our anchor with the Father, as long as we stay anchored to Christ. The winds, tides, and storms of our life will not rip us from our anchored position if we don't let go of the anchor. It's our task to keep hold of it, no matter the storms, no matter the trials, no matter the tribulations, and we will stay anchored in the presence of God. And just thinking about that should give us great comfort when we're in those turbulent times that we have direct access to the throne room of God. The anchor is not a temporary means of security. It's an eternal means of security. It will last forever. Just as an anchor prevents a ship from drifting into danger, God has given his people a sure hope of avoiding loss. And that's the anchor of Jesus Christ. Jesus as our forerunner is a new concept to the people who heard this. It was foreign to the ideas of Levitical law. The high priest in the line of Aaron would enter on behalf of the people, not as a forerunner. He entered on behalf of someone who could not follow him into the Holy of Holies. He entered the Holy of Holies not as a pioneer, cutting a path for others to follow. But our high priest, Jesus, is not of the line of Aaron. He's on the order of Melchizedek. His priesthood has no beginning or no end. He is our great high priest forever. The believers anchored to the great high priest, the rock of salvation, in the once-for-all atonement that Jesus secured for us. We read about the Levitical high priest in Israel, arrayed in his gorgeous robes, would enter the sanctuary, wearing on his shoulders the twelve stones upon which were inscribed the names of the tribes of Israel, and upon his breastplate twelve stones with the names of the tribes of Israel upon them. Thus he would carry upon the shoulders of his strength and upon the heart of his love, the state of Israel into the presence of God. Just so, our heavenly great high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, 
carries upon the shoulders of his omnipotence and upon the heart of his infinite love those who place their faith in him into the presence of God. Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has opened the way for the faithful to follow. And the past tense implies and reinforces the completed work of Christ on the cross. It is not something we are waiting for. It is already finished. And he's unfailing in his duties. In the summer of 1996, electric power outages hit the, twice hit the western United States when high demand and unfortunate accidents combined to trigger massive blackouts. The first failure affected 2 million customers in 14 states on July 2nd. The second affected 4 million homes in 10 states. One spokesman for the power industry said, under no circumstances should this, a blackout, happen, let alone twice in one summer. But it did happen. Customers wondered if they could trust their power suppliers when they could not provide uninterrupted service. However, our great high priest, Jesus, provides uninterrupted access to God's presence for his children. We will never experience an outage of divine power. His presence before the Father fills us with hope, encouragement, and stamina. With the strength we receive from him, we can find the staying power to endure in our Christian commitment. Where's the responsibility of the church in this whole message? A word of warning. God's promises must not be used in an attempt to coerce him. I'm sure we've all heard prosperity gospel message. In the reasoning, in the service would go something like this. The pastor would say, does not God's word say that he will give you whatever you ask in Jesus' name? Congregation would answer, yes. Is God true to his word? Congregation, yes. If God doesn't fulfill this promise to you, whether it be a house, a car, healing, promotion, then God is a liar. We know that God is not a liar. So if God said it and you step out in faith on what God said, then God must come through. When this is done, this is... This is an attempt to back God into a corner using his word. And it's dangerously close to Satan's temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4, 5 through 7. We should submit to God's will, not attempt to dictate our will to him using his promises for our benefit. We must not confuse true Christian hope with what the world often calls hope. The playwright Gene Kerr said, Hope is a feeling you have that the feeling you have isn't permanent. I had to read that a couple times. Hope is a feeling you have that the hope you hope is a feeling you have that the feeling you have isn't permanent. This is far short of our Christian hope that is grounded in revelation, encouraged by the Spirit's work in our lives, and aware of our future realities. True hope produces purity. Patience, fulfillment, joy, and stability. The Big C Church has a responsibility 
to engage in effective evangelism and discipleship. What can we do to help the young, not by age, but by spiritual age, converts cling to their commitment? Two factors to consider from recent survey results. Somewhat disturbing. New church members were more likely to drop out, fall away from the faith, if they are introduced to Christianity through a manipulative process. Among survey responses, 87% of those inactive initially came to Christ through a church member who used manipulative dialogue. Contrast this to 70% of those still active in the church who came to Christ as a result of non-manipulative dialogue. Many of us know it's about building relationships. It's about learning or having trust develop between people. It's not trying to coerce and get them a one-time commitment. Sometimes that will happen, but most of the time, those of us that have seen the, the data, it's a long-term, it's building a relationship, it's getting to know them, where they can trust you and see that not only are you speaking, but you're walking what you're speaking. In today's world, we've heard too many sales jobs that words don't hold the same value that they used to, and we need to show by our actions that the words we speak are really true and we believe in what we're saying and we build those relationships. Second one, dropouts are more likely to result from a process that neglects long-term development in the faith after a person has converted. That was me. High school, I came to Christ. The church I went to had like zero discipleship or growth. So I came to Christ. Thank you. But for a period of probably 15 years, I had zero growth. If anything, I may have regressed a little bit. It wasn't until later on when I became friends with a a missionary in Korea that he really took time and started to disciple me. We, as the body of Christ, have a responsibility to disciple people. The gospel says that. Make disciples. Those churches that emphasize a person's engagement within the Christian community in the evangelism process and their initial entry into that community as the first steps in faith development are likely to integrate meaningfully those who make commitments. When a person comes to Christ, many times, get them involved in evangelism right away. Get them involved in service. Help them. As a body of Christ, we need to make sure that we disciple baby Christians and help them to grow in their faith. We don't leave them at the point of salvation and never grow them. We must resist all temptations to push Jesus into a secondary place in our lives. We need to hold firm to the chain of the anchor. And we can only hold firm to that chain if we've surrendered to the call of the cross, we've surrendered to the lordship of Jesus in our lives, we walk in patient and humble obedience to his leading until we are called home. I'm going to finish with a quote from Spurgeon about waiting, how waiting is never easy. Waiting is one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. 
Marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. There are hours of perplexity when the most willing spirit, anxiously desirous to serve the Lord, knows not what part to take. When what shall it do? Vex itself by despair? Fly back in cowardice? Turn to the right hand in fear? Or rush forward in presumption? No, but simply wait. Wait in prayer, however. Call upon God and spread the case before him. Tell him your difficulty. Plead his promise of aid, but wait in faith. Express your unstaggering confidence in him. For unfaithful, untrusting waiting is but an insult to the Lord. Believe that if he keep you tearing, even till midnight, yet he will come at the right time. The vision shall come and shall not tarry. Wait in quiet patience, not rebelling because you are under the affliction, but blessing your God for it. Never murmur against the second cause, as the children of Israel did against Moses. Never wish you could go back to the world again, but accept the case as it is and put it as it stands, simply and with your whole heart, without any self-will into the hand of your covenant God, saying, Now, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. I know not what to do. I am brought to extremities. But I will wait until thou shalt cleave the floods or drive back my foes. I will wait if thou keep me many a day. For my heart is fixed upon thee alone, O God, and my spirit waiteth for thee in the full conviction that thou wilt yet be my joy and my salvation, my refuge and my strong tower. God has called us to be faithful in our obedience, to walk patiently, and as the church to speak truth and to speak into the lives of those around us and encourage and exhort one another. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.